We are continuing to talk about Christmas, and I've been talking to uh, uh, my wife and, and, and our team at the church because Christmas is a funny time for me because, because I feel like every time I, I'm excited to, to preach on Christmas uh, and talk about Christmas, but I also sort of feel like I've said everything I know about Christmas already, you know, like I don't know if I have a lot of new stuff. And so I always sort of approach the season like, man, I got to come up with new stuff. But the funny thing is, is there, there like isn't new stuff, you know? I mean, it's the story. God came in the flesh. And it's funny when you start just reading stuff and you start unpacking it, I always bump into new truths. I bump into new revelations. I bump into just, you know, stuff that I've never seen before. And I get excited about Christmas all over again. So, so I just hope to just ignite your, uh, your anticipation uh, for Christmas, because here's what we know. We know we're in a season right now where when you turn on the TV, you're going to see a bunch of television shows and a bunch of celebrities singing songs about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? It's just that season. You turn on The Voice, you turn on any sort of like, you know, singing competition, and there's all sorts of celebrities doing, doing uh, specials on Christmas, and, the, and, it's, and it's funny to me, and, and not like no judging, like I don't know their heart, I don't know what they believe. I mean, some of them might totally be Christians, but I also know it's kind of this funny time where, where tons of people are singing about Jesus and talking about Jesus and know the stories about Christmas, but don't quite understand the meaning of it all. And isn't it true that you can know all the stories, it's possible to know all the stories about Christmas and yet miss the point, miss the meaning of Christmas. And that would be a tragic thing uh, to happen, to know all the stories but miss the meaning. And so what we want to do is these Sundays as we approach Christmas is just take a different glimpse, a different look at what Christmas is all about, look at the meaning of it, because we easily sort of miss the, the, uh, the essence of Christmas. For example, for example, is one of the things that we get caught up in at Christmas time is we feel the, the pressure, the crazy pressure to make our Christmases perfect. Right? There's tons of pressure to make Christmas perfect, to make sure that the, the food is perfect, make sure that the decorations are perfect. Um, and there's all this pressure that's on us because we want our Christmases to feel perfect. But the trouble, the issue is, is you are not perfect. <laughs> and your Christmas will not be perfect. One of my favorite things to do around this season is sometimes on Instagram or Facebook, you see some Pinterest fails for like things that you try to bake because you saw that somebody else baked it and you're like, I could totally do that. And then people take pictures of it. Check it out. Here's some Pinterest fails. Uh, you know, <laughs> you saw the picture and then you try and that's what your cupcakes turn out like, right? There's another one. This one's hilarious. Right? There's a couple more. Um, you know, there's the Christmas tree and there's the Christmas green poo, you know, blob. Oh, man, it's just a disaster, right? And then, yeah, here's, here's one more. Oh, it's just horrible, horrible. We do this with Christmas pictures, too. We see the adorable Christmas pictures, and then we try to recreate them because they look amazing. And you see it on people's uh, social media, like this one, you know, like, oh, perfect baby picture, the lights and the ornaments. So you try to set it up, but, like, this is what yours looks like. <laughs> or, uh, or Santa, you know, or, like, or this sort of a light. Here we go, you know, like, super cute. So we're going to set it up, and then this is actually what reality looks like for your family. Or the best is the Christmas uh, uh, Santa pictures because, you know, you see Santa pictures like this and you're like, oh, it's the perfect Santa picture. But we all know this is a farce, right? It's not going to happen this way. It's going to happen like that, right? It's just going to be nuts. 
Um, I actually went into our, the Rice family archive and I pulled out an old Santa photo that we had from a couple years ago. This is, our fa- this is one Santa photo. That's Jeremiah on the left. That's William um, on the right there. And we, we got this ad for like a free Santa and it was like at a, like a, a, like a Circuit City or something. I don't know, before they went out of business. It was just like a weird store for there to be a Santa, but it was free. So we're like, free Santa, we're, we're cheap, you know? So we went down and what we realized is you get what you pay for because because we, re- we took the picture home and we were like, started looking at it and we're like, this is the creepiest Santa we've ever seen. Look at it, just zoom in a little bit. <laughs> That's creepy, right? So creepy. But here's the thing is there's so much pressure at Christmas time to make Christmas perfect. And here's the, and actually, here's the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is that you are not perfect. Your Christmas will not be perfect. In fact, that's why Christmas exists. Because the perfect God comes down and comes into the midst of our imperfectness. The very first Christmas day was not perfect. Wasn't perfect. It was cold, it was drafty, it was in a stable, it was itchy, there was animals. It was during tax season, for goodness sakes. It was, not, it was not a perfect day. And therefore, you don't have to be perfect because you're not. And your Christmas doesn't have to be perfect because you're not. Because the meaning of Christmas is that God comes into the midst of all of our imperfectness. See, that's, that's, we're starting to get into the meaning of Christmas, but it's easy to get caught up in all the stories and we miss the meaning. And so um, today I want to introduce you or, or just reintroduce you to an important doctrine. Okay, we don't, we don't, sometimes people don't like that word doctrine because it sounds stifling. Uh, but what I want you to see is actually this doctrine is not stifling, it's liberating. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. That's the theological word that we use for this crazy thing that happened, this claim that, that the followers of Jesus made. They made a crazy claim. They said that Jesus is God and he is God as a bambino. He's God as a baby. He's God in the flesh. How crazy is that? It's the incarnation. Incarnate. Uh, you've had chili cone carne, right? Chili with meat. And the word incarnation literally means God in meat. God in the flesh. That the divine and, and the human, they come together. What a mystery. What a mystery. And one of the best places to see this is John chapter 1. We read a little bit of that last week. And we're just going to read a few verses that we didn't get to last week. But as, as we said, John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And, it's, and John's gospel is really different than the other ones. It's laid out differently. The other ones start out with a manger, and there's no room in the inn, and there's Bethlehem, and there's Mary and Joseph. And those, those gospels all start out with those stories. But John, I think he kind of assumes that people know the stories. He wants to get to the meaning. And so he just skips all that stuff. Not that that stuff's not important. It is. But he, he takes a completely different approach with Christmas. And here's how he says it. This is from John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, just a few verses. He says this. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, 
John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds. And he's not talking about himself, John. He's talking about this other guy uh, that, we, that we get introduced to in the New Testament. His name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, uh, was, came before Jesus and he was sort of proclaiming that who this Jesus was and who he was going to be. And John the Apostle is talking about John the Baptist here. And he says, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds. This is the one I, ta- I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am. For he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. Or your translation might say, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. That's an incredible line right there because, you know, Christmas could have come to to us in the form of law, could have come in the form of a book. Like God's like, I'm going to reveal myself. I'm just going to send him, uh, you know, a manual. I'm going to send him a rule book, a law book. That's how I'm going to reach their hearts. But John's like, no, 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 no. We, what we know, if, if, if you're paying attention to the Bible, what we know is that law, the law isn't going to get to the root of our hearts. Something else has got to happen. And here's what happens is God says, no, the law came through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. And then he finishes with this. He says, for no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. The claim that these eyewitnesses are making is unparalleled. They're saying, hey, listen, you want to know who God is? You want to see God? Here's how you see God is you look at Jesus because in Jesus, God is revealed to us. It's an incredible claim. And the combination of Jesus's divinity and his humanity and how those two things sort of work together has been one of the most controversial and confusing issues in all of Christian theology. From the very beginning, there have been so much discussion. And when I mean discussion, I mean healthy discussion. And when I mean healthy discussion, I mean conflict within, within the, the early church of how in the world can God be, can, can Jesus be God and yet be man at the same time? That cannot be. It's so difficult for us. We don't have categories for that. And so what was happening in those early days is is the, this claim is made and Jesus says, yes, I'm God in the flesh. But then people are, are thinking about it afterwards and they're just trying to, trying to bring those two together and it's so difficult. And so what people were doing is that they, were, they would either emphasize one over the other. And so there were some that came along and said, oh sure, Jesus is divine, but he's not a real human. What he was is he was like a divine person, but he was like, he put on like a human suit, you know? And so he was like wrapped in humanity. He wasn't actually human. So he didn't actually die on the cross. That was all just sort of, you know, it was uh, because God can't die, you know. So, you know, it's this idea that God's divine, so he just appeared as a human to us. But then there was other controversies. One in particular, there was this guy named Arius. It's, it's known as this, as called the Arian controversy because this guy Arius made this claim that said, no, 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 I know how it works, is that Jesus is just, uh, is not the, not divine, he's a created being. And while he is perfect, 
He's not divine at all. He's created. God created him to sort of stand in our place. He's not actually God. And so, you know, both were, were being emphasized. And so the early church had to do some sort of heavy lifting here. And they got together. They had some councils. And some of these first church councils had to do with this issue. Is, is how does Jesus' divinity and his humanity come together? And let me read you one of these first creeds that they made. with These first, meet, these first meetings. It was in Nicaea, and out of it came the Nicene Creed from the year 325. And after they were all said and done, after they met for a long time, um, they put this together. Here's the Nicene Creed. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, Arius, um, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Very short creed. But what happened is more controversy and more people said, oh no, it can't be both God and man. It's got to be either God or man. And so there's all these different viewpoints. So they had to get together again. And, uh, and a while later, this is from the year 451, they went to another place. This is called the Chalcedonian Creed. And it's a, it's a bit longer and it uses some language that we're not used to. But I want to just read the whole thing to you because what I want you to get from this is that there is some serious creedal jujitsu happening here. All right? It seems like kind of they're using a lot of words for stuff, but I mean, at every point in this creed, they are they're meticulously and carefully sort of combating all these different heresies and all these different, different viewpoints that people were trying to take the humanity out of the divinity and the divinity out of the humanity. Listen to this. They say then, they say, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these, and in these later days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to manhood, one and, the, of the, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. They love commas and semicolons. There's like not even a sentence here. But rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, the God of the, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers is handed down to us. Whew. Thank you very much. That was the Chalcedonian Creed. Now, listen, here's what I want you to There's a reason why I read this whole thing to you, is because... When we read creeds like that, you know what we hear often in our modern minds and especially in Eugene? We hear a creed like that and it seems like these are like nitpicky people and they're trying to just like create these borders. They're trying to like make their theology and their doctrine so set so that anybody who disagrees with them, they're, you know, they, they're heretics and, you know, they make this creed to be all nice and tight. 
And, you know, why do they have to do that? You know, that's the problem with religion, you know, people would say is, why does it have to be so, you know, so like structured like that? And it's easy to read a creed like that and think that that's what's taking place. But I want, what I want you to hear is <laughs> that is not what's happening right here. You know what's happening is these early church fathers went to great lengths not to take away from the mystery of the incarnation, but to preserve the mystery of the incarnation. They're trying to leave room for some ahs and some woes and some how does that work? They're trying to leave room for it. They're not trying to shut that out. They're, everybody else was trying to say, oh, no, we, let's take the mystery out of it. It's either God or it's man, but it can't be both. But the early church father says, no, we're going to work hard for this. We're going to make sure it's so clear that this, we're entering into mystery here. That it's all God and all man. And they're together. And one doesn't take away from the other, but they work together. And you'd ask them, how does that work, guys? And they'd be like... Man, we don't know. But we're going we're gonna to keep reading and we're going to keep in searching. But we're not going to let people take the mystery out of it. But we're going to preserve the mystery. Isn't that cool? You read a creed like that and it's like, ah, oh, they're just you know, making rules. No, they're leaving space for us. They're leaving space for us to enter in to this mystery of the incarnation. Um, what they came out with was this thing called hypostatic union. And basically, it's a theological word that means 100% God, 100% man, all together, all together. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, he says it this way. I love how he puts it. He says this. He says, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. And so our early church fathers are handing us something so beautiful. They're handing us two furious opposites, but yet in Jesus Christ, they're both potent and furious. And they worked hard for this. Now, they really cared about this. This was such a big deal. And it makes me wonder why it's not such a big deal to us. I mean, it is a big deal. I mean, we celebrate Christmas and Jesus is God and he came in the flesh. But we kind of sometimes just take it for granted. We kind of just say it, but not really know what it means. What does the doctrine of the incarnation really mean? And how do we preserve it for our day? And why is it important to preserve it for our day? Why is it important for us to see Jesus as fully God and fully man? Some of the reasons why are, are these. One is because we have a tendency, even in our day, to emphasize either one or the other. Either, either Jesus becomes this divine sort of force, you know, like in Star Wars, the force, you know, like kind of somebody that you can kind of, kind of know, or Jesus becomes our buddy Jesus, you know, you know, our like, hey, friend Jesus, like, and we sing these songs, Jesus is my friend, and you know, that's, that's, that's true, he's our friend, but also taking him like so like our friend, it means that we can manipulate him. We can kind of just make him say what he wants. We make sure that what he says is what I believe. And so we can sort of like morph him into our image. We tend to do that. Um, our, my family growing up, we tended not to emphasize the, the humanity of Jesus as much as we emphasize the divinity of Jesus. So um, in my house growing up, whenever, whenever I'd see pictures of Jesus, because we had some pictures of Jesus on the walls, and I'd look at Jesus, and I came to the conclusion as a young kid, okay, for whatever reason, Jesus really loves clouds, and Jesus really loves sheep. 
Like, okay, I don't get it, you know, because all the pictures that we had of Jesus was Jesus like on this big cloud and there's big light behind him. And, and then and there's always a picture of Jesus with a sheep around his shoulders like this. You know, remember those pictures or he's holding a little lamb like this and he's got a staff and he just sort of seems like hard to relate to, like hard to get to know. Like, I don't know any shepherds, so I don't know how to relate to the shepherd guy. And as a kid, I just remember like not knowing how to relate to that God. What we have to do is we have to fight hard to have this picture that God is divine and he's human. And in Jesus Christ, they come together. Uh, I was trying to think of an example for us to really see it. And this is the best I could think up with. So I, I've, got a, I've got a special guest coming up. I want to invite uh, my wife to come up and I want her to bring my son Dawson. So my son Dawson coming up. This is your shining moment, brother. Um, this is, oh, okay. I, oh yeah, he's a little bit, it's okay. We'll be all right. It's okay. Yeah, this will work. Okay, check it out. Hey, buddy, it's okay. I know, but I'm your dad. It's all right. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, things are good. Um, this is Dawson. He is a boy. Um, we, uh, we just love his hair, right? We just can't get rid of it. Um, I'll go on walks with him, and people will be like, oh, beautiful daughter. And I'll be like, thanks. You know, I don't even, I don't even uh, correct anymore. Um, but this is Dawson, and here's what I want you to know. And it's okay that he's sort of crying like this and... You know, it's kind of, I know, buddy, I know, I know, this is kind of awkward. Um, I know, you don't know all these people. What I want you to understand is kind of a little mind-blowing, that God came as a two-year-old. Jesus was like this. Does, will that blow your mind? Just let it just sit right there for a second. See, we like to think of Jesus as a man, you know, and, we like, and then whenever we think about Jesus as a baby, we think of him in the manger. But we don't think of him like with crayons, like writing on stuff, you know. We don't picture, like Dawson, he is into everything right now. Everything. He just learned how to open doors. Oh, God, Jesus, Lord, help us. You know, he's just like, he's into everything. And God was a two-year-old. God went through the terrible twos. God was a three-nager. Isn't that wild? See, we, we just, we, we think of Jesus and like sort of, he's sort of out there and, you know, it's hard for it to grasp, for us to grasp, but God came. What, what a crazy plan. Who, who would have thought that, why would he come so vulnerable, so small, so, why would he come like this? And why is that important? That's what I want to talk to you about today. And Dawson, you did so good. Yeah, you did great. Yeah, this is your moment. Yay! He, can, he knows how to sign stuff. Can you say more? Can you go more? Can you say more? Can you say Google? He knows how to say Google, actually. It's pretty cute. All right, here we go. Uh, give him a hand. He did great. Yay! Way to go, buddy. Here's why this doctrine of the incarnation matters. Here's why. is because it means that we can know him, it means that we can trust him, and it means that we can follow him. We can know him, trust him, follow him. Here's the first one, is we can know him. We can know him. Um, what you call someone clearly reveals how well you know them. What, the, the name that you call someone reveals what kind of relationship you have to them. Okay, so for instance, I've got people in my life that call me, um, well, sometimes I'll get mail at my house that says Mrs. Brooks Rice, 
because I kind of have one of those names that you're not really quite sure, you know, what my gender is. So um, whenever I get mail like that, I know, I obviously know that, you know, this is bulk mail. They don't know me, right? Some people call me Reverend Rice or Reverend Brooks. And whenever I get called that, I'm always like, yeah, they don't know me very well, <laughs> you know, because I don't, uh, I don't, you know, I don't ask people to call me that. I've got, a, I've got a group of people that call me Professor Brooks or Professor Rice. I've got people that call me Pastor Brooks, Pastor Rice. Um, I've got people in my life that just call me Brooks. And, but if you were to come up to me and you, if you were to call me Fat Bucho, that tells me, that tells me that you knew me from high school and that tells me that you, we've got some stories. Because Fat Bucho was my nickname in high school because that was my Spanish name in Spanish class. And so it's stuck. So if you're with me sometimes, where, where I'm, if I'm going to see somebody that I know from my past, or if you go up to where I grew up in Oak Harbor and we go there, you're gonna, well, I'm going to bump into people and they're going to be like, Fat Bucho! And I'll be like, what's up? Yeah, but I'm still Fat Bucho. <laughs> Fat Bucho. <clears throat> that was my name. I'm not giving you permission to call me Fat Bucho, all right? Only people that knew me back then can call me Fat Bucho, but that's the point. You know, they, they're, they're, they've got that history with me. I've got one person in my life that calls me husband, and I've got three beautiful people in my life that have the, have the, the ability to call me dad. The, what you call someone reveals, reveals your relationship to them. And God could have given us a manual he could have, uh, uh, not Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you know, God could have given us a, yeah, that was a good one, right? God could have given us a, God could have given us a general. He could have given us like somebody large and in charge that you have to call and get an appointment with, but you have to wait two weeks, you know, to get the appointment. He could have done all that, but he didn't. Instead, he, he gave us a name. He gave us his name. His name is Jesus. If there is ever a message that God sent the world, it's that, listen, I am not aloof. I am not out there. I'm not gone. I am close. I am near. I want you to know me. Here's who I am. I'm not going to send a booklet. I'm going to send a person. I'm not going to send a philosophy. I'm going to send me in the flesh. There's a message that God wanted to let us know is that he, he's knowable. He's knowable. Imagine if you owned a football franchise. You're the owner of a football franchise. Owners get to have a special owner's box. Owners get to have a special entrance and a special exit. You know, owners get all these different perks. But what if you were the owner of, of uh, or what if you were like one of the football players of this organization, but the owner decides, hey, I'm not just going to have my own box. No, I'm going to be on the sideline for every game. I'm going to make sure I'm out in front of the, of the tunnel when the players come out, and I'm going to high-five every player. How cool would it be to, to play for an organization like that where the owner's on the field? But God did even something better than that. God's the kind of owner of the franchise that says, I'm not just going to be on the sidelines. I'm going to, I'm going to practice with you guys. I'm going to put on pads. I'm going to let you hit me. I'm going to get bruised with you. I'm going to sweat with you. I'm going to get out on that field with you. I'm going to take some hits with you. Imagine, imagine an owner of a football franchise owning it like that. And that's exactly what God did for us. But even better, but even better than that. We can know him. You can know him. Next is you can trust him. You can trust him. Um, it's hard to trust people that, you, that haven't earned your trust, right? It takes a while to build trust with people, doesn't it? Uh, 
I mentioned before that this, this Christmas will be like our sixth Christmas. We, Christy and I have been here in Eugene for about five, five and a half years, I guess. And uh, what's funny when you move from someplace, I remember thinking when we were moving from Seattle to come down, I remember thinking, man, we are never going to have the kind of friends here that we, that we have up there. You know, if you've moved, you've felt that way. It's like you build this tribe, you've got these people, they know you, and you move and you just think, I'm never going to be able to get that back. And so, you, so we came down, and even in the first few years, you know, the first few years, it's, of course, you know, you're surrounded by great people and there's so much good stuff. But also, you know, every once in a while, Christy would look at each other and we'd be like, man, do, do we have like real friends yet? And I don't know if we have like real friends yet. And we, and we need friends, you know. And now that we're five years in, what's funny is we've, the last six months or so, it's funny, Christy and I have been, every once in a while, we'll just say like, man, we've got some good friends. And you know what it takes to build good friends? Is it's not just laughing together. Do you know what it takes to really build friendships? Is you, you got to walk through some pain together. You got to walk through some tragedy together. You got to walk through some hurt together. Like that's what builds those, those, those friendships, those enduring friendships. And it, and it takes time to walk through that with, with people. And Christine, and I feel like we're, we're there. You know, we've walked through with, with many of you for, with, with hard things and things. And it's just built, built something in us. That's what it takes to build trust. Now, imagine God came to earth and he said, I'm God. You will trust me. I'm commanding you to trust me. Wouldn't work, would it? Oh, no, it wouldn't work. God knows that that's not how your heart works. He can't demand your trust. He can't do that. In fact, some of like the low lives of the world are the kind of people that are, demand respect from you but don't want to do anything to earn respect from you. You know those kind of people? They just want respect, but they're not going to actually sort of build that respect. And God knows that he can't just come and demand trust. So how's God going to do it? This is the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of the incarnation. I was with a friend in Bend about a year ago, and we were up late. We were, you know, we were, um, we were up late talking about faith, and he was expressing to me, I can't believe in God. I just can't believe in God. You know why I can't believe in God? Or why I can't believe in Christianity and Jesus and all the stuff about, it's, it's because of suffering in this world. He says, there's too much suffering. There's too much pain. How can I believe in a good God when, when there's so much tragedy? A good God wouldn't allow that. And he's just getting that off his chest. And we've all asked those questions too. Every thinking person should go through the process of asking those questions. And he's asking me, what's the deal with pain and suffering? And really, I, I didn't, the thing I had to say to him is what I'll say to you now is that the Bible doesn't tell us all the things that we want to know about why there's pain and suffering. It doesn't give us all those answers. It doesn't give us a watertight sort of proof for, for why and how. You know what we do have in our faith, though, is we have a God who is willing to come right into the middle of our suffering and pain. See, it doesn't, and Christianity doesn't explain why, but what Christianity does give us is something that no other world religion dares give us. No other world religion dares say that our God is king of the universe and he came in the flesh and in Jesus he comes together and he comes together not as a big general with a big army. No, he comes together as a baby. He's vulnerable. Seemingly weak. He's, he's, not, he, he's, not, he's not like Superman. He's like he can get, he can get whipped. He can get bruised. 
He can get torn open. What kind of a God would do that? I'll tell you what kind of a God would do that. A God who says, listen, I'm going to come into the midst of their suffering. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to be a part of it. And because we have a God like that, guess what what Christmas means? You can trust him. You can trust him. You can bring your pain to him. You can bring your life to him because he knows. Because he knows. Because he's been there. You can trust him. He's earned it. He's earned it. The book of Hebrews says this. and The author of Hebrews says it so much better. The author of Hebrews says this. says, Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Then listen, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. That's why we can call him Wonderful Counselor. Why? Because he can counsel us. Why? Because he's been there. Because he knows. And then Hebrews 2.10 is a strange verse. It's just such a, it's an interesting verse. Listen, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for, who, for whom and through whom everything exists, that, that Jesus should be made the pioneer of their salvation, that Jesus would be made perfect through what he suffered. That Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I don't even, I don't quite know what this verse means. This is an interesting verse because, you know, you think, wasn't Jesus perfect? Like, didn't he come to us perfect? Like, wait, he had to learn perfection? I mean, he wasn't perfect until he went through suffering? That's a strange verse, but do you know what it means? You know what this verse means? It means that Jesus came to us perfect. Jesus is perfect. But yet, because he didn't just talk about alleviating suffering, because he actually walked through suffering, he actually now completely understands suffering in a way that he didn't before, in a way that he couldn't before. And so in a way, Jesus coming to earth became, if you could call it this way, he became even more perfect. He became even more perfectly perfect because of the suffering he experienced. And because he experienced it, you can go to him, and this is how the author of Hebrews says it. He says in verse four, so, or chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. What does that mean for us? <laughs> then let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christmas means that you can go to him and that he knows. The early church father, Irenaeus, he used this theological term called recapitulation to describe why Jesus had to come as a baby. Let me explain recapitulation. It's the understanding that God had to come as a baby because God was, in a way, standing in the place of all babies, and yet God was also uniquely trying to understand babies. That God had to come as a two-year-old. Because in a way, God was sort of standing in the place of all two-year-olds. But also, he was coming so that he could understand a two-year-old. That God had to come as a three-nager. To stand in the place of every three-year-old. But also to understand and connect with what it means to be three. 
Isn't it incredible that our God knows exactly what it's like to be a toddler? Wow. Do you know that our God was a teenager? He was a teenager. Any teenagers in the room? You don't have to raise your hand. We know you're here. Some we got some teenagers. Here's the beautiful thing. Here's what no other religion will give you. No other worldview will give you this. This is beautiful. God knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows exactly what it feels like. He knows. You're in high school. It can be tough. Guess what? God knows. Your college age person here, listen, God was college age so he could stand in the place of all college age and also so that he could understand. And it just gets deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper. Have you lost a loved one here? Has anybody lost someone? It's hard. It's tragic. And guess what? God knows exactly what it feels like to lose someone. Anybody here been betrayed? You've been betrayed by someone. You've been betrayed by a bunch of someones. Jesus was betrayed. He knows. He knows. Has anybody here had a miscarriage? Anybody lost a baby? They lost a son or a daughter? So hard. Guess what? God knows. God knows what it's like. Somebody talking about you behind your back, making up stories about you, that hurts. That's hard. Guess what? Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Do you ever cry out to God and you feel like he's not hearing you? You ever feel like you're praying and you just feel like you're not hearing anything from God? And where, where is he? Guess what? Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He knows at everything that you're going to experience, at every different season of life, Jesus had to come as he did, vulnerable as he did, so that he could be our Savior and so that he could, so he could know us. You can, tr- you can know him and you can trust him. That's the good news of Christmas. And finally, finally, you can follow him. You can follow him. Um, the cool thing about the incarnation is the incarnation gives us a model. It gives us a model for how we get to now in turn live our lives. If God's going to come and like the owner and come onto the playing field, if he's going to do that for us, then that gives us a model for how we get to live our lives. And so the incarnation of Jesus is our new missional model for how we reach others. It's our new missional model. He didn't stay up in his ivory tower. He came down. He came near. He came close. And so that's how we get to live our lives. That's how you get to work your jobs. Why do you think that you have the job that you have right now? Why are you working your job? Now, I know the answer that we would normally say, it'd be dollar, dollar bills, y'all. That's why I'm working my job. It's because I'm getting paid. Well, that's part of it. Yeah, you're working your job because you're getting paid. But you know why else you're working your job? It's because God has put you there. Oh, yeah. God has put you there. And you are surrounded by people who may not ever come to a place like this. I hope you invite friends. I hope we're creating a church that makes it easy for you to invite friends. I hope you invite them to Christmas Eve. It's going to be a great time. They're going to just have a good time celebrating Christmas Eve together. But you know what? A lot of your friends, they're not going to come to church. So we got to bring the church to them because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. 
He was incarnational. He brought himself. And so you are in your job. Why? To make money? Yeah, sure. But you know what even bigger reason for your job? is because you're a missionary there. God's placed you there. Maybe the, the plan for those people in your work, for them to be able to see Jesus clearly, maybe God's plan is that you would go and be just like Jesus. You would be incarnational. You would come in close. You'd come in near. Maybe. Maybe your family. Maybe that's what your job is in your family. In your recreation, in your hobbies, all that. Why is God, why, why are you doing those things? Because it's fun? Yes, it's fun because God wants it to be fun to so just drive you back so that you can be the church wherever you go. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to have the band come up. And I just want us to respond in, a, in just a way this morning. Uh, ask you some questions. Father, thank you so much uh, for Christmas. And Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge that we do this thing that is so easy for us to do. We remove the mystery. We, it's either all God or all man, but it's just so hard for us to have categories for how you can be both. And Lord, I pray that this doctrine of the incarnation, that our church fathers, that these church fathers worked so hard for, they just labored to keep this mystery intact. That you are truly God of the universe and yet you are you came as this helpless baby. This was just your plan, this crazy plan that none of us would have ever thought of or believed would even, would even work. But you came so that we could know you, so that we can trust you, so that we can bring our hurts and pains and our suffering to you because you know, because you were there. And your perfectness was made even more glorious because of the suffering you experienced. And so, Lord, we come to you now. We come to you at Christmas. We, we look to you at Christmas. We bring our imperfectness to you at Christmas. We pray, Lord, would we be so transformed that we would then go and be different. We would go and be just like you were to us. Or help us do that. And, and Westside, as, just, as you just keep your eyes closed, I just want to ask you some questions. I just want to sort of dig in and just ask you some, some things and just let it rattle around in your heart this morning. But are you, are you incarnational like Jesus? Meaning, are you, first of all, are you accessible like Jesus? Are you accessible? Jesus was reassuringly similar but surprisingly different are you that way in your job are you that way in your sphere of influence is your door closed do people feel like they can approach you and ask you questions are you just all business are people just sort of like stepping stones or in the way to the to the to the thing or are you looking at people as people are you looking at every opportunity are you accessible like Jesus was are you vulnerable like Jesus are you expecting that your strength is going to get people there more than your weakness? Perhaps maybe it's your weaknesses that are going to help people see Jesus even more clearly in your life. Are you being vulnerable? Are you being humble like Jesus? People don't need another know-it-all in their lives. They need a servant. They need an advocate. Are you humble like Jesus? Are you sacrificial like Jesus? 
Are you generous like Jesus? Are you kind like Jesus? Are you bold and courageous like Jesus? Are we, Father? Are we these things? Lord, pray that those things would get birthed in us, they would grow in us so that we can be like you. Thank you, Father.